What if you could have a more lighthearted relationship with money and learn the integral concepts about money in one single book? In this week's episode, I chat with Emily Guy Birkin about her new book, Stacked, which can help you do just that. We chat about investing for retirement, disability insurance, inflation, and learning as you go with compassion, grace, and humor. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm bringing back my friend, Emily Guy Birkin, a freelance personal finance writer and author of the new personal finance book, Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management alongside Joe Saul Sehigh. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to bring you back and especially to um, document this occasion. This is the first time I think I have a returning guest on the show. So welcome back. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. I like I like that. <laughs> it's very exciting. And also, I think it's perfect because your first episode was very early on in the show. Mm-hmm. It was about grief. It was about heavy topics. And while we are talking about some heavy topics today, a lot of it has to do with a a lighter tone, some humor. So I think it'll be a nice compliment to your Mm -hmm. previous episode. Definitely. (laughs) And anyone listening who hasn't checked out her first episode, definitely do that before you check out this one. But we're going to get into the fun stuff. So you just released this new humorous guide to money with Joe Salcihai of Stacking Benjamins. I completed it just last night. I thought it was so in-depth and amazing and funny and really just thoughtful. And you could see the research that has gone into it. You can see that you're trying to make this accessible for everyone so that, you know, people won't fall asleep when they're trying to learn about money, which I think is exactly what you intended to do. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, what was your inspiration as well as Joe's to write a book about money in this style? So um, Joe was the one who first came up with the idea for this, and he pitched it to me. So he, as the host of Stacking Benjamins, they take a very lighthearted and playful tone towards money on that podcast. Yes. (laughs) And one of the things that really appealed to me about this was the, um, the fact that we could make money more accessible to the types of people who are not necessarily going to pick up a financial book. So when my most recent book prior to this came out, it's called End Financial Stress Now, I was talking with a friend about it and she was saying like, I probably should read this book, but I'm scared to. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about how she feels so overwhelmed with the idea of money that even the idea of picking up a book about money, she was afraid that she was going to be shamed or she was afraid it was going to go over her head or that in some way it was going to make her feel even worse. Um, which is the last thing I want, which is the last thing I think any any good financial writer wants. And so my attempt with End Financial Stress Now was to kind of say like, no, 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 you don't need to be stressed. You know, you can lower your shoulders, you know, lower the temperature. But even better than going into it saying like, this will help you end your financial stress is going into it saying like, you know what, this is going to be fun. We're going to have some fun with this. We're going to make you laugh. There's going to be silly puns. There's going to be jokes. There's going to be humor, playfulness. Um, we're not going to be taking ourselves too seriously. 
And that is a, such a great way to help people kind of relax enough to get the information because so often we are in this like hamster wheel of thoughts when we're feeling anxious about something or feeling scared or worried about something that um, it's very hard to kind of lower our defenses enough to even get the information necessary to help with that anxiety or or fear and so being able to say like no there's 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 funny illustrations and like uh, we talk about games and you know we make jokes about presidents and stuff like that that is something that allows people to kind of come in without any preconceived notions about what money is going to be about in this book Yes. And I think the style and the tone, you know, is so refreshing and accessible. And I love the point that you made that so many people approach finance, especially early on in their journey with this sense of fear, Mm -hmm. with this sense of, am I going to be judged? Am I going to be good enough? Is this going to be overwhelming? I think so many of us have found ourselves in that position before. And, you know, even for a seasoned personal finance writer like myself, like this year in particular, I started writing about investing. And this was way out of my comfort zone because I typically write about student loans and credit. And even for me, I was having these mental blocks around, oh my gosh, can I even understand this stuff? Can I, you know, wrap my head around it? And I had to grapple with my own fear and doubt around this topic, even just as a writer and then obviously as a person who manages their finances. And so I think people who are just getting started with their journey, all of it can be so overwhelming. It's literally like learning a new language when it comes to credit and debt management and budgets and you know, investing. And the book really provides a great kind of how-to guide on, on learning that language in an accessible way that makes it more fun and really breaks it down so that you understand it. Because I think a lot of the finance books out there that kind of have a lot of this jargon, this serious tone, it creates this kind of us versus them mentality. Mm -hmm. And really just, let's be honest, it kind of reinforces this have and have nots kind of separation. Mm -hmm. One of my my biggest pet peeves about a lot of um, personal finance writing is an assumption of knowledge on the part of the the writer. So early on when I was writing about retirement, I would look at retirement books, you know, for inspiration and and, um, to kind of get a sense of what to cover. And a lot of times these retirement books would say something like, okay, so if you have a million dollar nest egg, you'll be living on $40,000 a year. And it would be like, where did that number come from? Why are you saying that? Like, how did you get that math? And so for me, it's really important to always provide the most detailed information possible because I'm not going to assume anything about the person reading it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to assume that you know where I got that math, that you know where the percentages came from, that you know where, you know, how I did things. So no matter how simple it may seem to me or even to an editor or something like that, who is very familiar with the topic, I want to make sure that I go through all of the steps so that uh, someone picking up the book for the first time who has never done anything with money can be like, oh, okay, I see how she got there. And so that's kind of what Joe and I brought to this, this project is we wanted to let people be able to see like how everything works from the beginning. And I think a lot of ways, uh, in a lot of cases, the best way to do that is to not take yourself so seriously. Because that's part of what happens is, and I think part of the reason why you get that kind of us versus them phenomenon in a lot of financial media is because people want to prove their bona fides. So like, well, you know, I, I, I clearly, I know my, my stuff because I'm using all of these acronyms. Clearly, I know my stuff because I'm not explaining how I got this math. Whereas if Joe and I are willing to, you know, tell embarrassing stories about our financial mistakes and we're willing to make it clear that everyone is struggling in some way or another and everyone is is going like, wait a minute, what does that one mean again uh, mm-hmm. about anything and are willing to kind of poke fun at ourselves, poke fun at the industry, um, that makes things a lot more accessible, particularly to people who find finance to be intimidating. Yes, love that so much. So now you've kind of mentioned this idea of having a playful attitude with money. I'm curious, like, what do you think 
Um, why do you think it's important for people to develop a playful attitude with their money and how does it help them with their mental health? So we have this tendency to think of money as life or death. And I'm not going to in any way say that it's not life or death because like absolutely there are times where having money can mean the difference between having a roof over your head or not, having medicine you need or not. The problem is when we think of money as life or death, we put so much pressure on our decisions to be right instead of recognizing that in most cases there is some wiggle room to be wrong. And so having a playful attitude towards money kind of gives you a little bit of that, that distance you need to be able to make decisions that are not um, filled with pressure or you know you feel panicked about it. So one of the examples that I give in the book is I talk about um, money Tetris. And that's something that I used to do when I was first out of college. I worked at Barnes and Noble. I was making $8.25 an hour. Um, it was not a lot of money. But because I have always kind of just the way that I'm wired, I look at money as kind of a game that I think I can, I feel like I can win. I was able to kind of look at my bills, look at uh, the money that I, I owed to my student loan, stuff like that, as Tetris pieces. And like my budget was the Tetris board. And so I, if I could figure out ways to move things around, I could make everything fit. And so looking at it that way, freed me up instead of when I would get, for instance, um, my car insurance bill was um, every six months. And so it wasn't something that I budgeted every month. And so the bill would come and I, and instead of going, oh no, how am I going to, oh no, oh no, oh no, I, I, I'm not gonna be able to pay rent. I'm not gonna be able to do this. My mind would be going like, okay, what piece can I move? What piece can I change? How can I shave something off of this? How can I do that? And so I was looking at it as a game that I could win rather than as something that I needed to worry about. And that helped immensely in keeping me from feeling anxious when I was making very little money. I love that. And I think approaching it with this playful mentality and like it's a game like Money Tetris, I think that does take off some of the pressure and makes it more fun, to be mm -hmm. honest. And mm -hmm. also just realizing that, you know, games can be won or lost, but you keep playing again. I mean, you think of athletes, they lose games, they win games, they keep going back to the court or the field or whatever sports metaphor we want to keep going with here. But, you know, people keep playing. And I think we can do that same thing with money that a lot of our mistakes aren't necessarily fatal, nor are they final. And, you know, what kind of buffers can we put into place to make sure that they are not final or fatal? Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important part of finance too. Like, and the book covers a lot of great different financial protections and kind of emergency funds and everything. And that kind of brings me to my next question, you know, that I thought was so amazing in the book is that you guys really kind of advocated for this vocabulary shift in personal finance, you know, instead of saying saving for retirement, let's change it to investing for retirement, which is more accurate and appropriate. And you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, like what's the difference and how can this change in vocabulary help people? So when you talk about saving for retirement, that brings to mind a specific image. And uh, so I actually um, think of it like we think of it as the like um, Scrooge McDuck saving for retirement <laughs> in that you are personally bringing coins into a vault and throwing it in and they stay there. And it is entirely your responsibility if you are saving for retirement. But if you are investing for your retirement, you are kind of deputizing your money to help work for you too. So it's not entirely your responsibility. Your money is taking on some of the work as well. Because when you invest for retirement, your money is going to grow on its own. Now, the thing is, like when people say I'm saving for retirement, in my 401k, they are investing. But it feels like more of a burden. It feels like the onus is entirely on you. So when you kind of change that vocabulary and like change the way you look at it, you are going to do a better job of um, letting go of the sense of like resentment or, or anything like that. I remember when I was still teaching, I had a, um, a coworker, another teacher who said she didn't see the point in saving for retirement because she wanted to spend her money while she was young and could enjoy it. And 
I was a money nerd, even though I was not writing about finance and not in the financial <laughs> field at the time. But I just remember like my jaw on the floor going like, oh, oh, that's, oh, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and some of it was because she was seeing it as taking something away from herself now for a future self that she couldn't really imagine. And that's partially because of the way that we talk about it. We talk about saving for retirement. And so that means you have to give something up in order to get something later. So if you talk about investing for retirement, that sounds more like an opportunity rather than some kind of deprivation. Yeah, I think it's so important because, you know, when you just change that phrase, like when you think of saving for retirement, let's take a common example of like, you need a million dollars to retire. Thinking of saving dollar for dollar a million dollars, no wonder people think it's so out of reach and, Mm -hmm. you know, not accessible because, given wage stagnation and inflation, it's like, how the heck am I ever going to get a million dollars? But investing for retirement, when you understand the basic principles of compound interest and how investing works and the different vehicles that you can invest in, you're like, oh, this is how it grows. Each dollar kind of works on my behalf to grow even more. And then it grows without me doing extra work. And that's how you get to a million dollars. It becomes so much more accessible through that lens. And I love kind of the different kind of empowerment you get by saying investing for retirement than saving for retirement, because I feel like saving kind of denotes frugality, mm-hmm. which tends to, you know, denote kind of women clipping coupons and saving money and not spending, but like investing. It's like, no, I worked hard for my money. I'm going to put it to use so that it works hard for me mm-hmm. and so that I can worry about it less in the future. Well, and you also get the issue of um, if you say like, you know, you need to save a million dollars for retirement and the idea that you have to save that dollar for dollar. It's very easy for people who are experiencing wage stagnation and who are, you know, haven't gotten a cost of living increase to go like, well, there's no possible way. So mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm going to hope climate change uh, destroys everything before I get to recover because <laughs> that'll be better. Um, which I have actually had people say to me. Uh, <sighs> yeah. We're making kind of a, a, a dark joke, uh, but they also mean it. And so that's one of those things where if we shift the way that we talk about things, we can, like you said, empower people. And so people are not going to be like, there's no possible way. So I might as well not try. People will be able to like, oh, okay, if I do this, I can get that. And, you know, I may miss the mark a little bit, but, you know, $900,000 saved is a lot better than zero. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard that comment too, that so many people are worried about climate change. I mean, I am too. And yeah, is climate change going to kill us all in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years before any of us need to retire? Maybe, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's that statement, do you want to fuck around and find out? (laughs) I don't know (laughs) if I do. I mean, I'm already scared with climate change. And yeah, I want to enjoy my money and also use it to try to prevent you know, climate mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. But also, if we do live long enough, I want to make sure that I can eat properly, take care of my health, house myself and deal with whatever conditions are still, you know, there given climate change. So I think we have to prepare for any and all realities. And something I've said in the podcast before, which makes it so hard to prepare for the future is that you can die tomorrow or you can die when you're 100. You literally just don't know. None of us knows. And so we have to have that very delicate balance of living for today, enjoying our money, but also preparing for the future. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something when it comes to retirement, uh, I talk to people about the the when you think about retiring, you think like the worst possible thing that could happen is that you could retire and die a day later. And that is, that would be tragic. That would be awful. But in some ways, the worst possible scenario is that you retire at 65 and live to be 120 and you don't have enough money for it. (laughs) And so, and that's uh, because, you know, once you get to like your nineties, it's not like you can go back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, when we look at these huge systemic, horrible problems like climate change, like social injustice, like income inequality, 
and you look at it and go, well, it's going to get me. So I might as well not plan for if it doesn't. You, for one thing, you're kind of um, giving up for other people in a way that is is not helpful. So, you know, we, we all need to have hope for a better future. But you're also uh, setting yourself up for failure because the only way to succeed in that way, in that plan, if you're like, well, you know, I'm uh, climate change is going to get us all, so I might as well not, you know, save money, is if climate change does get us all. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, it, so you don't want to set yourself up for failure in that way, and that's the thing that I think can be really tough, particularly people of our generation. We we kind of embrace that um, ironic cynicism. That that Gen X, um, like a late uh, early millennial uh, cynicism, is something that we all kind of fall back on. And I I understand it. It it can be like the gallows humor that people share when things are tough. And there's definitely a place for it. But remembering that planning for hope is actually going to be better, not only for you individually, but for our world and you know, that is also, I find much better for me mentally when I get into, you know, these, these mind traps where all I'm thinking about is like, oh my goodness, why did I bring children into a world with, you know, such terrible climate change, such terrible uh, systemic injustice. But I'm thinking, well, but they're here and I have reason to hope for them. And if I give up that nothing good will come of that. I can't actually help. And I feel much better when I do have hope. So why not? You know, there's, there is uh, no downside to having hope. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think that was so beautiful and helpful. So, you know, in the book, you also talk about money scripts and emotional needs that can be met with money. So this is a very hot topic and something that I'm personally interested in, in the mental health and wealth show. So, you know, how can people start to deconstruct their money mindset and relationship with money when so much of our mindset and experiences really came from our environment, our family, our culture? How can we kind of deconstruct all of that to find out what we really want and need and assess what's working and what's not. So money scripts are our unconscious beliefs about money that generally were formed in childhood. And we have scripts about everything. I mean, the, the, the money scripts is just one that we don't talk about because in our society, it's taboo to talk about money. So like we have scripts around gender, we have uh, scripts around how work works and, and things like that based on you know what we learned in childhood. It's just that a lot of those end up getting challenged because we talk more openly about that sort of thing. With money scripts, that can lead to kind of some disordered financial behavior. So for example, let's say someone gets laid off and they feel terrible and they know that they feel better when they go shopping. And so they go on a shopping spree, even though that is not a good idea right after you've been laid off and you don't know Mm -hmm. where your income can be coming from. Now, the thing about money scripts is they're not wrong. So, you know, that money script is like shopping makes me feel better. Um, it's not wrong. It does. It gives you a, an emotional boost. The problem is, is it serving you well? And the thing is, doing that that shopping spree serves an emotional need. You have an emotional need to feel better, to have an emotional boost. And we often in our society turn to money when there's a need because it can be an easy or simple uh, solution, even though it's not actually easy or simple, but it's just, it's one that uh, is available, particularly with credit cards and things like that for pretty much anything. And so when you have those kinds of disordered responses to something, if you stop and think about like, what am I feeling? What emotion am I feeling? What emotional need do I need to fulfill? And how can I fulfill it without spending money? And asking yourself to stop and have that distance between when you feel that emotional need and your, your, uh, your response is to like, I'm going to spend money, then taking a moment to go like, what am I feeling? How am I feeling it? What would help relieve this feeling or help me to feel better that doesn't involve spending money can do so much to kind of help rewrite those scripts that feel uh, like set in stone in our brains and help us find new patterns to um, to follow that are going to be a little more financially healthy. 
I love that. and think it's so important to understand your spending triggers and also, like you said, the money scripts that might be kind of unconsciously guiding you towards certain behaviors. You know, a lot of people, myself included, I spend more money when I'm hungry and I'm tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I just don't even care at, you know, the price. Like, back when I was actually traveling pre-COVID, like I eventually knew to bring granola bar and a banana Mm -hmm. to the airport because I would just drop $20 at, you know, Starbucks at 6am because I just needed my coffee and food because I was starving and tired. And then I was like, okay, I don't need to spend that much money. I just need to fix the issue of being hungry and tired. And so, like you said, sometimes you have to just be aware of some of that behavior and then also create a gap between that feeling and that action. And throughout all the podcasts we've done on this show, especially around addiction, whether it's alcohol, drugs, gambling, you see this behavior, you know, often is that you have this kind of trigger, this thought, this feeling that drives you to this action that makes you feel better in the moment. And I think a lot of us can benefit from, you know, like you said, adding that space to really evaluate what am I feeling? Because when we turn to spending, when we turn to gambling, when we turn to alcohol, drugs, scrolling, whatever self-soothing activity suits your fancy, it's because we're trying to distract ourselves from the emotional pain, from the boredom, from the hunger, from the exhaustion, from whatever. And, you know, no judgment. We've all done that. We've all been there. And sometimes you need that. It just depends on is it taking away from your financial life? Is it taking away from your mental health? You know, that's when it can become a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the you're hungry and tired um, thing. That's actually uh, that's the beginning and end of an acronym that psychologists suggest. Halt, which is for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. If you're feeling yes. any of those four things, you want to stop before you make any decisions, because those particular mindsets can cause you to make decisions that go, run counter to what your actual values are. And so if you find yourself wanting to, you know, grabbing for something, wanting something when you're feeling hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, making yourself wait 10 minutes or 24 hours or, you know, whatever it is before you engage in that decision can really, really be helpful. And finding another way to fulfill whatever it is, I mean, well, finding a way to, you know, calm down your anger, uh, feed your hunger, <laughs> get some mm-hmm. rest, or, or reach out to someone before you making make those decisions. It, it's, it's really uh, very empowering to realize like, you know what, no, those are those are things that um, I don't have to listen to. Yes. And sometimes it's just as simple as having a snack, a glass mm-hmm. of water and a nap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that can solve so many things. <laughs> so many times I'm like, I'm having the worst day ever. And then it's like, oh, I'm starving because I haven't eaten. I'm dehydrated. Oh, and I only got five hours of sleep. Hmm, no wonder. <laughs> and then it's like, I have a big lunch and then I have two glasses of water and then I take an hour nap and I'm like, wow, I feel like a different person. Like how many times I've said, I feel like a different person after eating properly when my blood sugar is low and Mm -hmm. taking a nap when I'm exhausted and having water when I'm dehydrated. It really (laughs) goes to show you like how much these, you know, urges that we have that need to be fulfilled, but we just kind of let go wild and we don't take care of ourselves. And then it's like, it could just lead to so many bad things, but they have quite simple fixes if we're just mindful of them. And remembering um, always also what your your bigger values are, because um, that's another aspect of it too. Like something that I think is really helpful is to come up with, like, if you haven't you know thought them through, like, what are your bigger values? What are the things that you want to accomplish? What, uh, what is it that you want your life to be working towards? And so that way, like when you are tempted to do something that is not going to uh, fit your values. So if one of your, your goals or values is, is um, paying down debt and you are feeling low and, you know, like, you know what, I, I deserve that leather jacket. I really want it. I deserve it it will make me feel better. Then you can stop and like, does this fit with my values? Does this fit with the goals that I've set for myself? Um, That can also really help too, because that kind of helps you remember what, you know, short-term improvement in how you're feeling 
versus long-term improvement in how you're feeling and which one is more important to you. Yes. All about spending on your values and bringing back, you know, your money mission statement and and what you want your money actually doing for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so, so important. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the mental health and wealth show. I wanted you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute, close your eyes and take a deep breath and exhale. Take a deep breath again. and exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lagert. So I wanted to talk to you about some of the financial resources and protections in the book. I love that you guys got so in depth about the different ways that you can protect yourself financially. And one of the resources you mentioned is disability insurance. And I was shocked about some of the statistics in the book about how common disability is and what we can potentially expect for ourselves and others. You know, how can we prepare ourselves today for short-term disability, long-term disability, and what should we understand about potentially getting a policy? So uh, we tend to think of disability as being, you know, you're in a bad car accident or you work in something like construction and so you're injured. But most disability claims are for illness, um, which in the time of COVID, people are, are a little more cognizant of that than they were prior to COVID. But illness can cause you to have to take an extended period of time off of work. And one of the, the shocking statistics is that one out of every four current 20-year-olds will have an extended disability leave before they retire when they are in their 60s. And so that's a staggering number of people. And most people do not have adequate disability insurance. Uh, now, a lot of people are lucky enough to be in a, um, a job that offers disability insurance, but the coverage may not be complete. It may take a long time to kick in. Uh, no disability insurance covers 100% of your your. Um, your wages, but if it only covers like 40 or 50% of your wages, is that going to be enough for you to live on while you're getting better? And so understanding how common a disability claim is and how little your disability insurance might cover is really important. And then there's the added issue of um, long-term disability. So a lot of times the disability insurance you get through work is short-term disability. So if you need to take three months after, uh, you know, you catch pneumonia to get back back to where you can come to work and, and get and work regularly, that's short-term disability. But if, for instance, you get pneumonia and it, um, it, it takes you six months to get better and after that you have rehabilitation for several years, which is actually something that happened to my mom. She, she uh, came down with pneumonia in 2012 that was bad enough she needed to have a medically induced coma in order to heal. Oh. So because of that, she ended up needing to relearn a lot of motor functions because of the coma. Um, so she is perfectly fine now. She's you know back to her usual energetic self, but it was pretty scary. Yeah. Um, and the the issue with long-term disability insurance is if you don't have it, that's a problem. And then there are two types of long-term disability insurance. There's own occupation and any occupation. So what that means is that uh, some disability insurance will stop working after a certain number of, of years or months um, and that's it. That's you're, you're done. Uh, some will continue going as long as you cannot take any job. So if you were working as a lawyer and you have a traumatic brain injury and you can no longer work as a lawyer, if you have an any occupation um, policy, 
you could technically get a job as a greeter at Walmart. And so it will not pay anymore because um, you you could be get, having a job that pays a lot less and does not require the same skills. And so that means the coverage falls off. So own occupation is um, a more expensive policy, but it means that if you can't do the, the occupation that you trained for and that you did, uh, you were working when you became disabled, it will continue to pay. And so these are all things that people just don't know about. They, they're not aware of the issue of how common disability is, and they're not aware of what coverage they can expect, um, you know, these differences between own occupation and any occupation and all of that. And so that can leave, leave people in a really tough position after a really traumatic event, because generally disability comes about because of uh, a serious illness, an injury, or something like that. And so these are things that uh, it's really important to think about ahead of time so that you're not blindsided by it and have to deal with the difficulties of the financial situation on top of the difficulties of trying to get better. Yeah, I had no idea about the own occupation policy versus the other one. And that's, you know, so mind blowing to me because, yeah, like if you worked as a lawyer, but now you can work as a, a Walmart greeter. Like obviously that's a huge difference in pay. Mm -hmm. And to think that you might be covered by disability insurance, but then maybe not because you could have that job. I mean, that is like a huge thing to be aware of, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I also just wanted to um, quickly mention something that is very relevant for the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I just pulled this up from the World Health Organization that depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease. More women are affected by depression than men. So that's, you know, a huge thing, depression and disability. Apparently, it's, it's one of the leading causes of disability worldwide. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be this physical thing that we see. Depression is obviously something that happens in the brain. And to someone that is just looking at you, they might not even know that you have depression. But depression can get people you know, who can't get out of bed, who can't function properly. And so you know, when I saw that statistic, I was like, wow, like, I mean, as someone who's experienced depression myself, I, I understand the capacity for life change and harm that it can do. And so I could imagine that, but just seeing those statistics in real numbers from the World Health Organization just goes to show you disability can look different than what we think it is. Like, yeah, like you were saying, we might think that it's, oh, it's a car accident or a construction accident. But if depression is one of the leading causes of disability, I mean, it can be just as much mental, psychological, neurological, and, and yeah, like we have to protect ourselves and, and prepare. That's one thing that I'm, I'm hopeful about is um, that we are now starting to have a, a better discussion about mental health and work. And uh, I'm thinking of Simone Biles earlier this, uh, this year. Yes. Um, you know, what a, an inspiration to all of us for her to say, I am more than just this particular event and I am not going to risk myself knowing that I've got the twisties, um, knowing that I could seriously harm myself just for this one event when I am a fully formed person who has life outside of the Olympics. And it was amazing. Uh, and it actually, I, I ended up taking a month off from paid work this year in September because I, you know, two years of pandemic, I'm feeling overwhelmed and, and um, I was talking to my sister about it. And she mentioned, she's like, you know, you seem overwhelmed. Could you pull a Simone Biles and step back for a bit? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and so that's something I, I think we are seeing more people who are willing to talk openly about it. And hopefully that that will lead to things like people are more willing to take time that they need and employers are more willing to be understanding of people taking time that they need when they are feeling depressed or are feeling overwhelmed or burnt out. And so we're not in this place where you're going to need disability insurance because you go until you can't go anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 
I also uh, wanted to talk to you about another financial protection you mentioned in the book about term life insurance. And it's actually something that I just have a personal question about that I'm sure would be relevant for our listeners. So term life insurance is often recommended for a specific period of time. So from what I understand, you know, you can say I'm going to get a term life insurance policy for, let's say, 20, 30 years at a million dollars. So if something were to happen within that 20 to 30 year period to the policyholder, then there would be a payout of a million dollars, correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So that's correct. Okay. So I, I understand that part. So let's say the policyholder, you know, lives beyond their policy. Great. Mm-hmm. They're still alive. They don't get any money at all. And would they have to renew a policy probably at a much higher rate than correct? Yes. So term life insurance is a little bit like um, your automobile insurance or your homeowner's insurance in that you pay policies and you really hope to not to make a claim. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so um, I find it's really helpful to, to talk to people about term life insurance that way, because that makes it a little bit more like, oh, okay, like I'm, I'm not going to get anything from this. This is mm-hmm. more just peace of mind, make sure my family's okay if something were to happen. So if you have a term life insurance policy that expires and you survive the the term, then you would have to renew it. And um, a lot of of, uh, insurance companies give incentives for renewal and that will help it stay a little bit more um, affordable. It will still be more than what you were paying during the term, but you'll often have a renewal that doesn't require a new uh, medical exam. And so in that case, the increase in price will only have to do with your age. And so you don't have to worry that, you know, oh, I had a cancerous mole removed and is that going to increase the cost? So those those sorts of things will um, be some ways that uh, insurance companies will kind of incentivize you know, being able to renew up until a certain point. Once you get to about your 60s, maybe even a little bit later, that gets to a point where insurance companies are not going to be interested (laughs) in Mm -hmm. renewing term life. Um, But for some reason, you want uh, life insurance that is guaranteed no matter how long you live. There is whole life insurance that is a lot more expensive because the insurance company is taking on all the risk because we all are going to die. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but because of the way those are, are um, created, there are certain options that are available to people with whole life insurance. Um, for instance, you can sometimes access the amount of money you've put into it. So it's called the cash value, you know, just to use for retirement funds, or you can have an accelerated, what they call an accelerated death benefit. So if you get to be in your 90s and you have a serious health issue, you can access that accelerated death benefit to pay for your medical care. And so that takes away from whatever your heirs would receive uh, when you pass away. But it means that you don't have to deplete all of your retirement savings to pay for your health care. Thank you so much for clarifying that. So I just have a, a quick question and you may or may not have an answer or thoughts and feel free to you know share candidly, but I'm just so curious what your thoughts on how COVID is going to affect disability and term life insurance, like if at all, like, do you think it's going to increase rates for people like who have had COVID or like any thoughts, projections, ideas, or not? Um, so... <laughs> Uh, my fear is that insurance companies are going to insurance company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's what they do. And that they are going to make it very hard to qualify for term life insurance or disability insurance if you have had COVID. So that's that's what I'm afraid is going to happen. Um, because insurance companies are kind of ruled by actuarial tables, which are the statistical tables that's, you know, based on different aspects of your health and age predict your your likelihood of dying, predict your likelihood of, of, of becoming disabled. And so to be fair, it's, it's nothing personal. It really is entirely, they, they look at the um, statistical likelihood of things. 
And based on that, they decide whether or not to offer you um, an insurance policy. They decide how much the premiums will cost and all of those things. And so I suspect that unless there is some sort of um, government regulation that requires COVID be taken out of the consideration in these actuarial tables, that it will affect costs and and people's ability to, to get it. Uh, that said, considering it is a global pandemic, it is you know a health issue everywhere. I think that it is entirely possible that um, there will be some sort of legislation that will keep insurance companies from price gouging or or doing anything that will keep people who have had COVID from being able to qualify for you know important insurance com- um, policies like like life insurance and disability insurance. I sure hope so, because, yeah, we're in a global pandemic mm-hmm. <laughs> going on two plus years now. And it's so wild. Like there's not one part of the globe, really, that's untouched by this. I mean, it's just whew, still can't believe we're still here. But uh, yeah. <laughs> we're going to keep on keeping on and hope we continue to survive and stay healthy. <laughs> um So in the day-to-day, besides, you know, the lingering stress of COVID, a lot of people are currently worried about inflation. That's been a hot topic in personal finance. And a lot of people are saying, you know, they're going to the grocery store and their bill's much higher right now. So, you know, what is your advice to cover inflation and what are your ideas for tax saving strategies as well? I know you mentioned some of those Mm -hmm. in the book and, you know, what can people do to combat the effects of inflation and save their money instead of just giving it all to Uncle Sam? So uh, when it comes to inflation, um, there's a couple of things that we can do. There's the stuff that you think of in, in, um, in the day to day, which is they call it the elasticity of demand, which is when there is inflation, people change their, their shopping habits. So for instance, if inflation is hitting beef, people say, okay, I'll do chicken instead. You know, that, that's, that's kind of the elasticity of demand. And where inflation is tough is when it's on things that you don't have choices. So uh, things like healthcare, medicine, education, um, you know, obviously you can choose to go to a different university, but if all universities are expensive, like you don't have the choice to, to you know, like, oh, well, I'll just, you know, get a degree where it's uh, $400 per semester. <laughs> it's like, well, that, that's not an option. So that's, uh, that's the, the kind of day-to-day um, recognizing that you may have to make different choices than what you're used to making is, is um, you know, something we kind of naturally do. It's also really important to make sure that you have your money invested in a way that hedges against inflation. So if you're someone who feels very uncomfortable with risk in terms of, you know, the volatility of the market and the, the possibility that you might lose principal, it can be very easy to say like, okay, I just want to invest safely so I know that my principal is there. The problem with investing safely, so if you're putting things in like CDs, if you're putting things in, you know, savings accounts with high yields, um, you know, things where you know that the principal is going to remain, remain the same, you may protect that principal, but your buying power reduces over time. And inflation is about three and a half percent. Prices double every 20 years or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of tells you just like how quickly things can change. And you can even think back back on how how much things cost, you know, when you were a teenager versus now, I think of like the price of a movie ticket um, is, is so much higher than it used to be. So that's that's one thing that uh, if you recognize that that's going to happen and investing in things that are going to have a little bit more volatility, but they have the ability to grow past the point of inflation. You just need to be able to learn how to ride the, the, the waves when they go down and recognize like, well, now is not the time for me to take that money out. I have to wait for it to go back up again. That is is one of the best ways to hedge against inflation. Thank you so much. I was just uh, reminiscing about going to Rite Aid as a kid and bringing three quarters for like 75 cents for a scoop of ice cream. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and I would mm-hmm. be like hunting for quarters. Do I have enough to get ice cream? And then I don't know <laughs> what it is today, but I feel like it might be like two or three dollars. But <sighs> I remember just like having the quarters ready and it's like, oh yeah, I, I need I need more now. So <laughs> that was the memory that popped up in my mind when you were talking about 
you know, paying for things as a teenager. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to go to the movies every single week when I was in high school. And uh, if I had $15, I could pay for myself and a friend um, and, and have change. <laughs> we couldn't quite afford Not to uh, um, popcorn. <laughs> Yeah, and so I just recently I bought tickets to see um, Matrix Res Resurrections um, as soon as it comes out, and it was thirty dollars for two people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, and that's um, that's something that you know we kind of we know that it's going to happen. We accept that it happens. One of my favorite things to do when I read older books and they'll mention the price of something, I'll go onto the inflation calculator. To, and because um, if you Google inflation calculator, there's uh, the um, U.S. government does this for any date starting from 1913 to now. You wow. put in an amount and it tells you what it is in today's dollars. And that is very helpful because if they say, you know, I was reading a book that was written in 1978 and uh, they said they spent 30 bucks on something. And uh, I was like, I don't really know. Like, is that a lot? Is that a little? And I, I, I put it into the inflation calculator and it was like $140 in today's wow. money. I was like, okay, now I understand. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a bit different. Yeah. Thanks for the tip about that calculator. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm so nerdy, but it's something like anytime I see a historical price, I'm like, all right, I want to know what that is in today's money. I love it. I love it. Well, this has been such a lovely conversation and I'm so glad that we could chat about your new book. Where can people buy it and where can people find you? So um, the book is uh, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management by me and Joel Saul Sihai. And it is available anywhere books are sold if you want to um, order online through Amazon or through Bookshop or if you want to go get it um, at your local bookstore, you can find it there. Then you can find me at my website is emilyguyberkin.com. And you can find me on Twitter where I am way too often um, <laughs> at Emily Guy Birkin. And then also Joe and I will be going on a tour to promote the book uh, starting January 5th is when he starts the tour. I'm only doing about half of it, but he will be doing 42 cities because he's a little bit... Uh, <laughs> He's Joe. Uh, he's Joe. He likes he likes a lot. He likes to be busy. Um, so, but the uh, the tour is going to include the West Coast, the East Coast, the Midwest, and the uh, kind of uh, southeastern area, including Florida and Georgia and a couple other places. So, um, we'd love to to say hi to you in person. And if you go to my uh, my website, there is a um, link for our world tour, and you can find out where we'll be. Love it. Super exciting stuff. Definitely everyone check it out. It is a fun and amazing read to get your finances together. And it's so comprehensive. And thank you so much, Emily, for sharing your expertise. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.